where you and your son. Josiah Holland wrote, God give us men. A time like this demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who possess opinions and a will. Men who have honor. Men who will not lie. Men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking. Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and private thinking. For while the rabble with their thumb-worn creeds, their large prof professions and their little deeds mingle in selfish strife, lo, freedom weeps, wrong rules the land and waiting justice sleeps. Now because we are aware that we live in a day of political intrigue, and we know that the important question, who do you trust, who do you believe, is more relevant tonight than it's ever been. Josiah Holland's prayer is a prayer that each one of us has prayed. God, give us men. But the truth is that God gives us boys that we're to rear to the kind of men that he prayed about. The truth is that God places in the hand of parents boys' lives to mold and to shape their character in the kind of men this nation, this community, this church so desperately needs. And with that placing of those boys in our hands comes this tremendous responsibility of character building, character construction. Now I want to address tonight the subject, you and your sons. Maybe you have several children in your home, maybe a teenager, maybe just a little boy. Maybe you're just, uh, you know, you are a son, but one of these days you will have sons. I want to address the subject, you and your sons. And there are five specific areas, I believe, where we can give specific instruction or we can do specific character construction that indeed will shape and mold the life of a boy into the character of a man. So here we go. Number one, begin to teach your boy the importance of standing alone. Now I want you to have your Bible there and we're going to uh, thumb through several passages. We're in Proverbs chapter 1, so get that ready. Proverbs 1, and the verses are 10 through 14 of Proverbs 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them like shield, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. Teach your boy early to stand alone. Now it is important that, that kids, that 
boys, that girls, as a matter of fact, are accepted by their peers. And it's so important that kids have friends, and many friends, if that's possible. But there comes a time in every person's life when he must stand alone. And there are times when it's just not the best to go with the crowd or to follow the consensus. There are times when a boy is going to have to stand alone if he does what God wants him to do. Now, how much time do you, uh, you know, spend with your boy just teaching him those places, those areas of land where he must stand alone? It's our responsibility to teach them, set the standard of right, and convince them that it is right. Now you say, well, how do you do that? How do you teach a boy early that he has to stand alone sometimes? Well, let me suggest four family projects. I'm going to try to make this as practical as I can. Four family projects. Number one, teach early the quality of a good friend. Teach the quality of a good friend. What qualities should I look for when I choose my friends? What am I, what, what kind of friend should I choose? Now I think every kid, every child ought to be taught to respect everybody regardless of you know, what they are or who they are or the status of their, you know, their families, their wealth, their position in the community, all of that, their color of skin. But there are some qualities that every good friend possesses. What are those qualities? Teach your boy what he should look for as he chooses a friend, qualities of a good friend. Secondly, constantly remind them of the consequences of wrong. Constantly remind them of the consequences of wrong. You know, the devil paints such a beautiful picture at the beginning. And he makes, such, it's, makes it so attractive and it seems so enticing, so inviting. And, and consequences and, and accountability is, you know, seems like light years away to most of us. Now I'm past the, you know, the, the big 5-0 myself, but and, and I can remember when I was a kid, I, you know, you never think about, you know, consequences. I mean, if you get to live to be 50, I mean, that's ancient. I mean, that's good enough. And, 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 and we never, it seems like light years away. And the devil paints such an attractive picture. Teach them the consequences. That there are consequences when they do wrong that are so tragic. And teach them that the consequences are worse than the temporary pleasures. I want you to turn to Psalm 73 and we'll show you an example of that. Now the psalmist is envious of the, uh, you know, the wealthy and the prosperous and he doesn't understand why the, the wicked prosper and he doesn't. And the 73rd Psalm is his complaint about that and he he's really has a hard time with it. Verse 23 of uh, Psalm 73, maybe... I'm needing 17. Let me see where I am. I'm on a, uh, I'm in the totally wrong psalm here. 
No, I'm not. Psalm 73, verse 23. I'm going to find it in a minute and get it right. Uh, 73 and 17. 73, 17. A verse in chapter 73, Psalm 73, the psalmist is complaining to God about the fact that the wicked prosper, and he, 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 he doesn't. He's lived his right, life right with God. And he doesn't understand that until verse 17 he says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Now what he's talking about here is that there is a consequence that everybody pays for wrong. Kid needs to know what that consequence is. Because the devil paints a totally different picture. Third, acquaint your kids with great biographies. Great biographies. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise. But the companions of fools will suffer harm. Now, now if, if, if I'm going to teach my son to, to, to walk with the wise, one thing I, I'm going to do is to int- acquaint him with great biographies, biographies of great men. Um, you might start with the book of Daniel, as a matter of fact. Teach your son that. And with your kids, you're going to sit down with them and you're quiet in your family time and read the stories of of, of great men of God. Not just biblical characters, as a matter of fact, but the biographies of missionaries and Christians who have, who have lived a life of vic- victory and, 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 the, and the reigning life. All right, number four. Show them how to stand alone with the least embarrassment. Now let me say quickly here that sometimes standing alone can be offensive. And the way we stand alone is offensive sometimes and embarrassing and obnoxious. And I think sometimes we can go overboard in, in, in encouraging our kids to stand alone to the point that they become obnoxious and offensive. And there is a middle ground, a balance between no conviction and a kind of a obnoxious, offensive conviction over here. And so you can teach your children how to stand alone without, you know, with the least embarrassment. For example, uh, suppose, you know, that they're confronted as a young person or a young man with, uh, you know, people drinking. How do, you, how do you turn that down, you know, without just standing out like some, um, you know, uh, offensive and, and obnoxious person? You understand what I'm saying? All right, from the very beginning, teach your child to stand alone. Secondly, the second area is in the area of being open and sensitive to God's reproof and counsel. Being open and sensitive to God's reproof and counsel. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father, the son in whom He delights. Teach him how to be sensitive to God. Develop in that boy a tender spirit toward God. 
It's not a sign of masculinity to be arrogant and proud toward God. The greatest mark of masculinity, in my opinion, is a tender and sensitive spirit, especially toward God. Listen, guys, women listen to a man who listens to God. Teach that boy how to be open and sensitive to God. And you say, well, how do you do that? How can I do that? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, teach him how to respond to your own counsel and to your own discipline. In other words, help your child to understand that an attitude of stubbornness and rebellion and defiance will not be tolerated in your house. And if that child learns right up front in the very beginning that he is to be sensitive to your counsel and to your discipline and that you'll not permit rebellion and uh, an attitude of stubbornness, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that every child ought to have the freedom to express himself even when he feels negative feelings, even negative feelings toward his parents, but the attitude of that expression is what I'm talking about. So that there is not this attitude of, of defiance and stubbornness and resistance and retaliation. You teach him to be sensitive to your own counsel and your own discipline. Secondly, you help him see the value of other people's convictions. Now I'm going to kind of what we used to say out in West Texas, I'm going to hold right up next to the cotton here. When your kid gets in trouble at school, maybe the teacher comes down on him or her, and they come home, what kind of response do they expect from you? I mean, do you go rushing up to the school and attack the teacher? Do you do that? I mean, does he see that you have no respect for the teacher? And, and, how, and, and what kind of attitude do they see you have toward policemen and law enforcement officers? I mean, what do they see, how do they see you respond to them? And you, do they see your respect for them and your admiration for them and your, your, your uh, honor of them? Or do they see in you uh, a defiant attitude toward that authority? And what do they hear you say about the leadership of your church, the staff of your church? What do they hear you say about them? Oh, don't answer that. <laughs> what do they hear you say about your employer, your boss? I mean, when you sit down at the dinner table, do all they hear is some negative attitude you have toward the people who are over you in charge. Listen, you can't teach your son to be sensitive toward the authority of God if they see you are not as sensitive toward the authority in your life. Number three, share your own life with your child, with your son. Those areas of your life that God has to show you those insights where you have failed, you, you share that. That 
those times when you've had to pay for your mistakes, those times when God has had to show you where you're wrong, I mean, be open about that, vulnerable. And let your child know, let that son know there have been times when God's had to deal with you with the rod, you see. And how you've been sensitive to that discipline of God and how God has taught you lessons by letting you fail and, and God has brought the rod of His own discipline to correct you. Let Him know about those times in your life. I think sometimes we are, we're so embarrassed we don't want to share that we're not perfect. Son needs to hear that you are sensitive toward God. Turn to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20. Proverbs 19, 20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Now this is going to take some time to do this. Not this sermon, but you know, to deal with a son like this. Uh, not long ago I read a survey where over a thousand businessmen were asked how much time they spent with their son other than sleeping and eating with them at home and the average was six minutes a week. All right, number three. Number three deals has, is, is with regard to the matter of dealing with temptation. The matter of dealing with temptation. Now look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Now chapter 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother, verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Teach your son how to deal with this matter of temptation. Now there are two areas where in, in the book of Proverbs where he where he talks about the temptation of a boy. One has to do with the temptation that's aroused by the opposite sex, and the other has to do with the matter of strong drink. All right, let me just deal with those separately. Spend some time teaching your son about the matter of human sexuality and its place its sacredness and its place. It's not dirty. As long as it is, as long as it is experienced within the framework and the boundaries that God intended for it. I have a beautiful, um, well I have a spot or two that's beautiful, St. Augustine Lawn. There's a few little places around my yard where it looks good. And you know, I can go, it's a nice, deep turf. I can go out there and, and, and take a big plug of that St. Augustine grass out and take it into the living room. And we have a white carpet in our living room, plush white carpet that you provided. And I can take that St. Augustine plug and drop it in the middle of that living room. As long as that St. Augustine grass is out there in the yard where it belongs, it's fine. But you bring it inside and put it on the white carpet and it's dirty and out of place there. And you teach your child 
the principles, the matter of human sexuality that in the right place, at the right time, in God's way, it is a beautiful expression of God's kind of love, but in the wrong place, it's dirty and wrong. And if you don't teach your son the matter, this matter of, 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 of human sexuality, if he didn't learn it from you, he's going to learn it from the streets. Um, and from some families, the kids get absolutely zero instruction with regard to this uh, crucial and, and sensitive subject. All right, how about the matter of strong drink? I want you to turn to chapter 23 of Proverbs, and let's begin reading in verse 19. And here is this miserable syndrome of the whirlwind. Look at this. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Skip down to verse 30. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Listen to this syndrome of the whirlwind. Your eyes will see strange things. And your mind will utter perverse things. You'll talk like you never, you wouldn't if you were sober, you see. You'll say things that are crude and vulgar and, and wrong. And you'll be like the one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies on the top of the mass. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I, when shall I wake? I will seek another drink. Teach your son how to deal with this matter. Now, folks, I don't know whether you're concerned about it or not, but if you're not, you ought to be. You can't go anywhere today without confronting, you know, the temptation. You can fly on airplanes, the first thing they offer you is drink, something to drink. It's at every ball game. It's at every major event. It's at the high school prom, and it's at the graduation party. It's everywhere you go. And it's in some refrigerators and cabinets of Baptist church members. And it's a critical, critical problem. And it's impossible for us to teach our sons how to deal with the matter of this temptation if we have a problem with it. And the alcoholics are getting younger. I was reading recently a startling statistic that one-fourth of all the members of AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, are between the ages of 12 and 20. And there are alcoholics who are alcoholics by the time they reach the fourth grade. I love to read the editorials on Saturday, this Royka, I don't know whether you read his editorial in the, in the uh, Dallas Morning News, a fantastic writer, a very liberal man, but 
Uh, he, he is a syndicated columnist out, out of uh, Chicago. He's telling about this past week when uh, Mr. Bennett uh, suggested that kids tell on their friends who are in drugs. And so he wondered how kids responded to that. So he, he, he surveyed, he had teachers all over the city of Chicago to survey their kids to ask, would you tell on your friend if he was in drugs to get him help? And he gave resp- how, the, how they responded. One response caught my attention. One kid said, one high school kid said, well, I tried to talk to my friend about being in drugs and I couldn't get him to stop. And I was worried about him and I was trying to help him and he wouldn't listen to me. So he said, I went to his parents to tell them, he said, they were so drunk they couldn't understand what I was talking about. No wonder the boy was on drugs. Now, let's get serious about this matter. That, that as parents to teach our kids how to deal with a temptation, strong drink. It's a dead end. It bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. And the end result of it is nothing but tragedy. Don't ever start doing it. Don't ever start it. All right, number four. Teach your son how to handle finances. Chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Let me say parenthetically, I don't think I'm off of this yet. Um, I wish that, um, I hope that each one of you sitting out here before me, and I, I I, I think you are kids that will absolutely refuse absolutely refuse to be involved in that stuff. And I know the pressures must be great and the peer pressure to party and and all that kind of stuff must be tremendous. I hope, I pray unto God that you'll never take a drink. And when it's all said and done, you're going to have more respect and, and, and folks are going to look at you and, and you know you may think they laugh at you, etc. But if in the, when the bottom line is drawn, you're the people that others are going to respect deeply. Including me. Including the rest of us, right? Right. Teach them how to handle finances. Chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now the amazing thing about this is that, that Solomon, the, the, the writer, is speaking to his son. And he's saying, okay, son, I want to teach you how to handle finances. Now the amazing thing about that is that, that Solomon was the, was the wealthiest man in the history of mankind. He had more money than he could spend. We've studied the life of Solomon. I mean, he had unbelievable wealth, and he's talking about how to handle finances. He's talking about how to invest in the Lord's work. And he's saying that it is important how you make your money, how you give your money, how you spend your money. And he's saying to his son, learn the joy of giving your finances to the Lord. Turn over to the 
22nd chapter, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Skip to verse 9. He who is generous will be pleased, for he gives some of his food to the poor. He's, he's saying, let me teach you how to give so that you can know the joy of giving. So that when that boy of yours or that child of yours gets his first dollar of allowance, you need to be right there to teach him how to spend one-tenth of that. And where to put that. And how to invest that. And, and how, to, how to use that so that the Lord can get glory from it and he can get joy out of it. Um, some of us have been tithers since we were little kids. Where did I learn that? Let me tell you where I learned the tithe. I, worked, I can remember my first job. I worked all day long in a grocery store on Saturday. made $7. I also walked five miles to school with a bobcat on my back in freezing weather. But I, 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 worked, I worked seven for all day long. got seven, $7. I remember that when I got home, that $7, how happy I was. My daddy told me, he said, now, now, now Gerald, he said, 70 cents of that you need to put aside. And, and tomorrow, you put it in your offering envelope, put your name on it, and you can give it in the offering plate. Now, I can remember how proud I was to take that 70 cents, 50 cent piece and two dimes, and put it in an envelope and put my name on it and put it in the offering plate. And I've been a tither ever since. Glad I am. Hope you are. All right, number five. Teach your boy the value of hard work. Teach your boy the value of hard work. I want you to turn to chapter 10. This will be the end. We'll quit in just a minute. Poor is he, chapter 10, verse 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Pays off to work hard. God says that the one who works the hardest is the happiest. You say, well, I don't believe that. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and get nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The soul of the diligent is made fat. Not his waistline. The soul of the diligent. What he's saying is that the diligent who works hard is happy when he does that. I mean, there's a, there's a joy in it. Teach your son the joy of hard work. Now, there are a couple of things I need to add. If you've got your outline, I need to add two things. First, that your boy must be very aware that you love him. He must be very aware that you love him. And so I'm going to tell you this, that you need to add the ingredient of constant delight. How long has it been since you took your boy in your arms, put your, put him, put your arm around him and said right into his ear so that nobody else could hear, Son, I want to tell you, that you are the delight of my life. I'm so glad you're my son. How long has it been since you told him that? The ingredient of a constant delight. And let me add a second thing. 
He needs to, he needs to learn the value of the rod, R-O-D. So you need to add this ingredient, consistent discipline. So there is constant delight and consistent discipline. Consistent discipline. That means that he can count on always being the same. He can count on you being consistent. There is consistent discipline and constant delight. He knows that he has to live his life in the boundaries, in the parameters, but he knows that you love him when he lives there, and he, and he, he knows that you love him when you don't, when he doesn't. And I think that probably the greatest joy that any father ever has, and every father here tonight could say amen, was to look, is to look back and, and, and say, you know, I've had the joy of, of leading my sons to Christ. I've had the joy of baptizing a son. The joy of leading my sons to Christ and the joy of seeing them grow up to be godly men. There's no, there is nothing greater than that. Nothing greater than that. Their little eyes upon you and they're watching night and day. They're little ears that quickly take in everything you say. They're little hands all eager to do everything you do. There's a little boy who's dreaming of the day he'll be just like you. You're the little fellow's idol. You're the wisest of the wives. In his little mind about you no suspicions ever rise. He believes in you devoutly, devoutly holds that all you say and do, He will say and do in your way when He's grown up just like you. There's a wide-eyed little fellow who believes you're always right and his eyes are always open and he watches day and night. You are setting an example every day in all you do for a little boy who's waiting to grow up and be just like you. I want you to join me tonight in making a commitment in these five specific areas to take this boy that God has placed in our hand and shape him, construct his character so he can save this country. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to understand that the responsibility we have as parents, as fathers and mothers is so great that we are so helpless in so many areas where we feel such a failure. But, Lord, we know there are some areas of life where we can make a specific contribution in the shaping and the molding and the construction of a child. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us patience? Would you help us to make
make the time necessary. like to respond publicly perhaps to give your heart to Jesus Christ some of the most dynamic and wonderful services and invitations we've had in this church have been on Sunday night holiday time when there's not that many people God wants to do something in your life tonight perhaps you you want to come and give your heart to Christ maybe some boy some girl some child say I want to Take a stand for Christ. And I won't do it publicly, and I need the support and help of the church. Pray for me. Maybe you need to come and join the church, or just to say, I, hey, I'm not doing what I ought to be doing in this area of my life. I want to come and make a commitment to that. With your help and prayers, I'll do my, I'll do my part. While we stand to sing, I invite you to come.